What is up, guys? Back for another episode of NC Raw Recovery Always podcast. Before we get started, wanted to announce that we are having a Super Bowl party. The NC Raw Super Bowl party is taking place this Sunday at 6 p.m. at the Microtel Hotel over in Dillsboro or Silva, North Carolina. If you live in anywhere in Western North Carolina and you want to come out to a fun, safe, sober um, environment and enjoy the game and enjoy the Super Bowl, you're welcome to join us. Just give us a shout. You can message me on Facebook um, through the NC Raw Podcast Facebook page or directly. Uh, We're trying to find out how many people can make it so we know how much food to provide. But again, that's the Microtel. In and Suites, I believe, in Dillsboro, North Carolina, Silva, North Carolina. You can't miss it. Uh, please connect with me if you plan to attend, and we will set you up uh, with directions and all that other good stuff. So, tonight's guest, my man, Mr. Kevin Rumley. He is the Veterans Treatment Court Coordinator for Buncombe County. Uh, he's also a combat wounded Marine Corps veteran um, who is kind of like the case manager for the Veterans Treatment Court in Asheville. He's also an advocate for medicated assistant treatment, MAT. Um, I enjoy talking to him. He's just a down to earth and a chill guy. Um, great dude to know. I'm glad that I'm glad that I've made this, built this relationship and, and met him through this process. And I look forward to, to hanging out with him uh, in the near future. He's also a musician. So just an o- overall uh, cool dude. Um, and he brought, uh, he brought a friend. He brought somebody that you guys might know from a former podcast, Mr. Ricky Johnson, who's a mentor for the treatment court, um, who works for NC Serves in Asheville. They're an ally of the treatment court, and they kind of work hand-in-hand. Hand. So kind of talked to uh, both perspectives from both the mentor and the court coordinator. So awesome conversation, tons of fun. These guys are great. Look forward to having them back in the near future. Give it up for my man, Mr. Kevin Rumley and Ricky Johnson. Living the miracle, standing divisible, connected to God and my physical essence of my spiritual presence is visible. Totally leaving you unaware of my mental subliminal. Used to be a criminal, living so minimal. But things have changed in my life is going through different intervals. Finding that balance is significantly difficult. Timing is everything, so my timing is critical. Rhyming is literal, the unforgettable. It's why I stand before you impeccably so presentable. I give respect to you, know that I am respectable. I've always wanted acceptance, is that acceptable? I give the rival expected to be exceptional. And I'm a grown man, handle business like a professional. I am incredible, Leo conventional. And you stopping me from chasing my dreams is unprofessional. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the views of the NCR team and the individuals interviewed. We do not consider ourselves to be mental health professionals. 
Our mission is to explore the various pathways to recovery and to give a voice to those affected by or involved in the care of substance use disorders. Some content may be mature for younger audiences. Viewer discretion is advised. Ready, set, go. Fellas. What's up? What is happening, hey, hey. man? Um, gosh, the uh, mother nature just does not want this podcast to happen. Uh, my man, Kevin Rumley, is here with us tonight. And he brought a friend of NC Raw and a friend of his, my man, Ricky Johnson. We had this podcast scheduled for early December, like December 8th or something, whenever the last time we had a big snowstorm. Um, we had, and I, I book guests like a month in advance. Like I have all of February's schedule already booked out and I'm already working on marches. Like I lock people in because um, that's just like the way my mind works. I need to be like organized and planned and stuff. And um, the storm hit on like a Friday. They were calling for a good amount of snow. I think Friday or Saturday. And like two days later, there was like still like, a foot of snow in my house. I shot you an email and you were like, yeah, I'm still stuck at my house too. I haven't been out yet. And so I was like, all right, well we can either, uh, just throw it on the next Monday. Cause I, I'm booking a month out. So I had all of like the neck, all of December was already locked in. And I was like the next available date, um, happens to be like, I think I gave you a couple to choose from here. Here we are today. Here we are. And I think it was, 25 emails back and forth. It was, dude. <laughs> so this conversation started. I, I saw you speak at a few events last year. Um, and we may have like met kind of informally. And then we sat down and talked at um, the regional recovery rally in Waynesville, North Carolina. Um I was like, come on, I, I want to have you on. Like, I, I, the thought had already crossed my mind. I, ha, I think I had grabbed your business card at one of the time, one of the one of the speaking engagements. Uh, so we've had this email exchange going on since probably like October or something, <laughs> September or October, about like For making sure. this happen. The first one got snowed out. Here we are again today with an impending snowstorm rolling That's in. Yeah. I was like, I, I went to bed this weekend. And I was just like, come on, <laughs> man. Do not come early. Like, no. it's supposed to hit Tuesday morning tomorrow. Here we are Monday night doing a podcast. And I was just like, oh, man, it's like Mother Nature, the universe mm -hmm. is trying to jam a wedge in between <laughs> this relationship. Exactly. And we are three people in long-term recovery. We are resilient. We are going <laughs> to overcome this snowstorm. My man Ricky Johnson has a snow shovel in the back of the car in case we get stuck here. I use my hands, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Real men use their hands. Look at those guns, baby. Yeah. Um, the, the fortunate thing is that we do broadcast from a hotel, which there are rooms available. So if we end up sleeping here tonight. Um, we will. So Kevin Rumley, what do you do? What do you do for a living? How did, how did we meet? Like, what is, I saw you speak at a couple engagements. You were talking about kind of like what you do professionally. And I'd like to kind of maybe like start, Oh, hang tight. Breaking news, breaking news, breaking news. We just got a message. A close friend of the podcast, Amanda, Joe Carey, Amanda Carey, you know her? Woo! 
You know her? Uh, she, we're friends Dude. on Facebook. She's celebrating nine years in long-term recovery today. Congratulations, Amanda. That's I just want to give her some love real quick before we continue, continue on with this uh, awesome conversation we're going to have. Amanda is an awesome girl. She was on the podcast. We're good friends. We talk all the time. She's an inspiration. The work she's doing is amazing. So Yeah, hey, I saw her today doing amazing work Did over you? at the jail. Yeah. yeah. Kick ass. Changing lives. So congratulations. Congratulations. I Amanda. saw your, I saw your you. post today, Amanda. You look very healthy. Check her out. Um so yeah, Kevin Rumley. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. Yeah, we um I think it was back at the Silva Library. That's where I met. That's where yeah. I first saw you. And it was a speaking panel. There were about 12 people on the panel and maybe two people in the audience. <laughs> and I was one of them. Yeah. So that meant a lot. But it was it was a great opportunity just to yeah, talk about recovery to anyone that would listen. And I love what you're doing with the podcast. You know, it's it's highlighting different ways of recovery. That, that means a lot to me. And I think... Um, Early in my journey of recovery, I thought there was only one way that this could be done. And um, everything that I did had to like somehow fit into this tunnel. And I would beat myself up if I wasn't living by that. But um, yeah, now I've got a couple years under my belt. Yeah. I have nine years too. And I'm blessed to be working at the Veterans Treatment Court. So I'm a social worker there and I get... Um, get to help veterans in their recovery journey instead of sending them to prison. Mm-hmm. They can uh, plead into our court and then focus on treatment and rehabilitation. Yeah. What I noticed um, in like reading your bio and a little bit about what you guys do over there, that kind of, what stood out to me, and Ricky, you might be able to talk a little bit about sure. on this, is that what stood out to me, like what, and what I've seen that takes place in some of these like law enforcement diversion programs what's different in what you guys are doing and from some of these other diversion programs that I've kind of aware of and kind of studied a little bit is that um, you guys work with felony charges. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And we are, I think, the only veterans court in North Carolina that is a felony diversion court. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's pretty, that's a pretty amazing, like, opportunity that you're given to individuals who kind of like choose to choose to walk that path and change their life. <clears throat> well, uh, I can speak from experience. You know, I'm, I'm a convicted felon twice. Um, one of the great things about veterans court is, you know, majority of the guys coming into the program, they're not, I don't want to say they're at the bottom of the barrel, but they're at the bottom of their barrel. And, um, Kevin and, and Veterans Treatment Court is kind of like their, you know, their last opportunity to get it together. And um, they understand that they understand that there's work to be done, but Veterans Court meets them in the middle as well. And the, the big difference in Veterans Court with a lot of other programs is there's a lot of support as far as the the uh, the, the guys participating support one another. It's a that's a that's a huge benefit to Veterans Court. So I should highlight our man, Ricky, is a mentor in the Veterans Court, which is something kind of unique to diversion courts. So we have a lot of wonderful programs. Um, we've got drug court, sobriety court, SOAR court. Um, but Veterans Court, we have this totally separate mentor court, uh, which are veterans in the community, like this fine Marine here. And they're paired one-on-one with a veteran that's pled into our program. Yeah. Um, we call them the battle buddies. They're with them this entire journey. 
and he can speak more on that. But I think that's why we're a successful program. It has to be so powerful for both both people involved. Yeah. For the mentor and the individual that's going through the the course system. It's um being a mentor to me. I mentor for uh, different for veterans, and um, all the roles that I that I take on in my career in my life. Being a mentor in veterans courts the most gratifying because uh, I can. I see a lot of myself in, the, in those guys as far as where I used to be and uh, being able to give to them what I didn't have, just the support, being able to relate to them, uh, listen to them, watching them grow through the support of the program. That's uh, I find a lot of it's really gratifying to watch that. So, yeah, yeah, it takes like a certain level of like humility to like kind of accept that mentorship from somebody like living the lives that we've lived um, and specifically probably somebody in the, coming from out of the services, but like living the lives that we live, like it's hard to like ask for help. It's hard to like accept that, that role. Like, and that's, what's so needed in all, all walks of life. Like that's like yeah. almost like the missing piece of the puzzle to like this whole addiction thing is like that mentorship, like role model, like yes. connection that so many people talk about. Um, like who did you look up to as a kid? Rock stars, you know. Like who did yeah, you who did yeah. who did I look up to as as an adult? People on this talk show that were partying and using drugs. Like who who were my who were my mentors? You know, besides my father, who I was fortunate to have in my life. Like who were my mentors? Right. You guys, you guys are able to like be that for somebody. Sure. And the beautiful thing about the program is probably that like somebody goes through it, you mentor them, and then what do they do? Give it back. Give it back. They turn around them. and give it back, exactly. dude. Right. And they're inspiring me. Yeah. So how I even got connected with the Veterans Court was about four years ago. I was just a mentor. Okay. And the relationship is everything. So I remember the previous coordinator, Dr. Howard, he'd say, listen, you're not their therapist. You're not their banker. You know, you're not their priest. All you are is battle buddy and you want to be that unconditional support, right? I said, Okay. What I found was they would call me either right, well, initially it started right after they used, they would give me a call, and it's a confidential relationship, so anything that a veteran shares with their mentor, it kind of stays with them, you know, unless it's uh, they're voicing self-harm or harm to others, so um, I was getting the veterans giving me a call, you know, they call me right after they got high or drunk, but over time, I realized they'd start calling me before they did that. And it was that subtle change. Um, and not all of these veterans were successful. You know, I, I found I put my heart and soul into these relationships, but they would still go out time and time again. And I'd be beating myself up as a mentor, you know, like what could I have done? And, um, it's just the reality of addiction, even a justice system where they're at the bottom of this, you know, this ride that is life. Um, but it doesn't matter how many external forces are saying, you know what, something's got to change until they make that decision. I can't do it for him. Ricky can't do it for him. But yeah, that was how I was introduced as a mentor to this program. Let's talk a little bit about how you like ended up, ended up kind of in that role as a mentor. Like what were you going, were you in school at that time? Were you, what was going on? Yeah. I think the, I had, just finished undergrad. It may have taken me 10 years to finally finish because I was in active use when I first started. Um, but I graduated and I was working in the community mental health field and 
um, I'm a combat wounded veteran. Okay. And it was something that I was like, you know what? I don't know if I want to be in that veteran community. You know, I was like into music. I wanted to just play drums and was happy to grow my hair long and my beard and have the Marines in the rear view mirror, you know, fit right into Asheville. Yeah, exactly. Just make Asheville my home. And it was, uh, cause I had a traumatic experience. I was, uh, injured in Iraq by an IED and I spent a year and a half at a hospital. I lost, uh, 26 of my best friends in Iraq. I was told I would never walk again. And, uh, so yeah, it was just, it was trauma, you know, and Mm -hmm. it was a long period of trauma and addiction. So when I finally came out of that, I was like, yeah, Marines. Mm-mm. That was what I associated with everything. But um, I think it was just a mentor I had in my life at the time. I was like, you should check out what they're doing at this court. It's really cool. They're sending, you know, Marines and Army and Navy uh, through this program. Instead of sending them to prison for 15, 20 years, they do a two year program. So I just went to go check it out. I sat in on court. And the judge, one at a time, is calling up these veterans and asking how many days sober they have. And the whole courtroom's clapping. I was tripped out by that. Because every time I've been in front of a judge, <laughs> I didn't get that re- yeah. response, yeah. you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it's just like, oh, man, that's a cool tribe right there. That's really what it is. It's a tribe. And I guess I let down my preconceived notions about what it means to be a veteran. I had a lot of projection on... Um, you know, being in the South and North Carolina, this identity thing. I mean, it's just all false bullshit that I have created, you know, and this is this is often true for many areas of life. We just create something and we believe it. And know? it takes a it takes a level of like effort and discipline to like recognize that and kind of like shift the way you think or like overcome those, those types of thoughts and like also a level of like time, right? Like in early recovery or like, you know, in, um, closer to the time of the experiencing those traumatic events, like it's hard to like, kind of like, kind of like in a rut you kind of have to like build up some momentum and kind of like have people in your life that can also like support you. Um, support you through that but you're totally right it's totally like a metaphor of life it's not that the whole thing that you just described whether it's the identity with who you are and where you fit in into society in this world and like what my mind perceives me to be compared to like it takes a lot of work to like recognize it and then change it right but that's a part of like this recovery process and learning to to live learning, learning who we are and what living, what living genuinely or truly is. Um, which is terrifying. Dude, it is. That's, that's what I realized is, uh, it's just the sense of terror with anything. Who am I as a human being? What? Yeah. And, um, one of the awesome parts of veterans court to me is as Kevin touched on, I've, I've been shackled in front of the courtroom a lot of times and, um, to see, uh, to see the guys go in front of the judge and, you know, in front of this, this man has the authority, their life is pretty much in his hands. And to see them go up there and the judge ask them, as Kevin said, how many days you have sober? He tells them, tells the guys, I'm proud of you. Is there anything we can do for you? And you can see that, um, the, you can see the veteran spirits just raised from that, 
Um, and to see that happen, that's a really beautiful thing to me. Um, you know, I've never seen, obviously I've never seen that in a courtroom, but to see the judge, uh, tell the guys he's proud of them, that's a pretty surreal moment. That's a, it's good energy. Um, as Kevin touched on earlier, we had a um, situation a few weeks ago, a person had a uh, relapsed after a few hundred days of clean time. And when he decided to, he, he stepped in front of the courtroom and admitted, you know, admitted his, his, uh, his fault. And I was, I found beauty in that. And the next time he was in court and he announced his clean time, all the guys stood up and clapped for him. And it was a very, I mean, it touched me deeply just to see that support. So, uh, it was, um, yeah, that was amazing. It was, I wasn't expecting that. So I wasn't either. Are either you got you two, um, do either of you two know like how this whole veterans treatment court came to be? in Buncombe County, like the history behind it and what led up to. I do. I'm a, I'm a historian now of all (laughs) things VTC. I can tell you the model first started in New York, um, Judge Russell. He noticed all these veterans were going through his docket. And um, when he would ask, are you a veteran? You know, this, this person otherwise would just be kind of slouched over going through the traditional justice system. And then they would, get a, you know, kind of proud that straighten their back and say, yes, I am a veteran and I served. And there was, he noticed that sense of pride, um, which was really just that initial spark. He started a, a court for veterans and, um, our judge in Buncombe County, his name is, uh, judge Pope. And I think in 2010 is when he first kind of got this idea and he had heard about what was happening in New York. Um, and he started asking around. He started asking, um, you know, the district attorney. And he asked Steve Cogburn, the clerk of court. And um, it's pretty amazing the number of moving parts that are required to create a diversion court. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't hurt when you have the resident superior court judge saying, let's do this thing. Yeah. Uh, but then we had usually support. it funnels the other way. You have right, to find right. the judge the, that's got willing to. to. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of that top down. And um, Todd Williams was elected district attorney. And then Steve Cogburn was on the governor's crime commission board and was able to advocate for just starter funds in the beginning. Um, so it was like a team of really 10 people or more than that that said, let's do it. And so they started in Buncombe County. And it was good to go. They signed all these agreements with the VA and lots of cutting of ribbons. But there are no veterans, right? (laughs) So it's like, all right, we got this program, but all of these things we don't know yet. Um, And we're still working it out. We're a a program that right now we don't take veterans that have violent charges. Sexual nature. Yep. So... Uh, they have to be nonviolent, um, and every single veteran that goes through detention, we're notified, and um, either myself or the VA um, staff will do outreach and talk to that person. But immediately we we find yeah, it was ninety percent of the veterans that go through Buncombe County detention aren't eligible for this felony level diversion. They, they, they screen out. Yeah, they screen out. They've got misdemeanors. They've got assault against females. Just every number of things, but they're not a candidate for a two-year diversion program. And but. I also want to clarify something as well. 
it's about accountability. I mean, it's court, yeah. and um, it's not just it's a smooth sailing. It's a, it's an intense program. Um, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, it takes a lot of dedication. But um, the I've only the the only the only graduation that I've attended since I've been in veterans court. It's a uh, the the prize at the end is worth it. I mean, it's a it's a very cool to see somebody put in that much work and achieve a goal. Oh, like that. Yeah, absolutely. And empowering for the other individuals that are in the room. What, so it's the idea, the ball became rolling in 2010. When did they have their first client? So the first client I think was, let's see, 2015. Okay. Yeah. So just many years they're mm-hmm. getting it there. Um, and they, had their first graduation, I think, in 2016. So just in Buncombe County, um, we've had 0% recidivism for our graduates. Go ahead and say that again. 0% recidivism for our graduates. Yeah, okay. But um, not everyone can graduate, yeah. which goes back to what Ricky's saying. It is a tough program. It's easier to not change. It's easier to sit in prison, get the three square meals, and... You know, just, do just your, get better at what yeah. you did to get in there. And it's kind of <laughs> like that mindset too. Like, you know, do you have that like mentality? You do do the crime, do the time. I'm just going to muscle through it. I don't, that's too much work. Like it's easier to just, to just kind of, I don't know. It's like we have this mindset, like even everyone that just like, okay, you know, I'm, this is what I've been sentenced to, or this is what I've done. I need to like, go through and just like do my time like that's it that's i speak on that often as far as you know in this program it's um like i said you have to attend classes groups and there's a lot of things and i'll speak for myself even um when i was in that life it was easy and comfortable to stay in that misery um you know it's hard to get up and go to a job it's hard to stay sober it's difficult to do the right thing uh fear and doubt sets in the fear of the unknown you doubt your ability so i mean what do you keep doing you just keep keep numbing and Shame builds up, guilt, and it's hard, it's difficult to face that. So, did you go through the program? I did not. Okay. I, uh, I, I I never went. I never went through a drug court or a veterans court, and that would have been. I see a lot of benefit in it, you know. So I think it would have benefited me as well. Yeah. And the veterans look up to Ricky in a way that you know maybe my lived experience. I don't have that same connection or that's, that's why a mentor's relationship with their veteran is so unique and special Yeah, because we pair them with a veteran that has potentially the same or close lived experiences, the same branch. So Marine with the Marine, um, handsome and young, obviously <laughs> handsome and young, but yeah, the there's in a way that only a peer can, mm-hmm. you know, we have, great resources in Asheville, amazing clinicians. Um, and the VA has been wonderful, but yeah, it's, there's something to be said for this peer relationship and that mentor that, you know, you can't get when you check into the VA, you know, and kind of just yeah. do your, you're not going to, five you're not going to get there. that from your probation well, I mean, officer. With, yeah. With, you, with, know? you know, with me, um, like say if they, if somebody said to their probation officer, a lot of times we'll put a mask on and just say what they want us to, you know, what, what we think they want us to say. And with me, they can kind of just, you know, chill out. And Authentic. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Especially like over time. That's, that's what I learned in my personal experience is that like after the 
third or fourth arrest. Like I know the song and dance. I know what to tell the probation officer. I know oh how to get gosh. through this efficiently. You yes, know, yes. I know how to do my community service hours. I'll write you a check. I'll come in there and tell you what you want to hear. And then as soon as you sign off on my papers, I'm out there. It's, you know, and we have to be mindful just as a program because it, I call it the recovery language mm -hmm. and we start hearing, hearing it. And it's just being echoed back to us. And we want to hear that. Mm -hmm. We identify that as the change talk and kind of the shift. Yeah, the shift. But at the same time, it's just us being fed this BS, you know, mm -hmm. if it's not that internalized, genuine, mm -hmm. authentic. And so that is, again, a credit to this mentor relationship Yeah, because it is. Yeah. A true assessment of like, all right, I know you had to say that in front of the judge and he gave you, you know, <laughs> praise for the song and dance, but how, how are you tracking right now? But having the livid experience as being somebody in long-term recovery and you kind of have that ability to kind of see through the bullshit. If you know, oh, and for sure. if that, if you're in that situation, I know Ricky Johnson's going to be like, Hey dude, like you're doing the song and dance in front of the judge, but let's be real. You know, what's even, happening? Even, even in my recovery, um, I mean, I've been sober for close to six years. Even being in the, being in that courtroom every time I'm in there, it still humbles me and reminds me of how quick, like I was speaking on the relapse earlier when I saw this uh, person relapse. And then, you know, he had the, the, he, he had the uh, courage to admit that in front of everybody it was, I found beauty in that because of, for one, he admitted to it, but two, it, um, it made me reflect on my life and see how quickly it can happen to my, to me. And, um, just being in that courtroom always reminds me of where I don't want to be at, be at again. So that's another benefit to me just to be in there for that. Yeah. So what you're saying is like you, you're telling me before the podcast that you, you do 10 hours a week. Is that, I, I get, I get paid for 20 hours, of 20 my job, hours a week yes. with NC serves Western. Yeah, baby. But you <laughs> yeah. tend to you tend to do more like volunteer yes, work I, I because volunteer. it provides that yeah. support for your own progress, for yes. your own recovery. And, kind and of in the day that we had this situation, um, actually, a guy a mentor he 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 quoted a uh, quoted George Carlin. It was um, just because you got the monkey off your back, it doesn't mean the circus has left town. And when he said <laughs> that, I was like, holy shit, man! It just, uh, yeah. it just it just put everything in my life in perspective. You know, like how. It's all that, uh, it's always there, you know, so yeah. to be on your, don't get complacent. So Kevin, what is your job title? And like, tell me a little bit more about like what you do. So my on a day to day title, basis. Yeah. Right, right. It's day to day. Um, I put out fires. No. <laughs> <laughs> my title is coordinator for the veterans treatment court. And, um, I say it's probably one part social worker, um, and case management, group therapy with the veterans where we'll come in or I'll do one-on-one -on -one, uh, therapy. And then I should give a shout out to Western Carolina University just down the road. I graduated from there last year. Um, but then the other, the majority of my responsibility is ensuring that every veteran's individualized treatment plan is syncing up that their goals um, are you know happening there are five phases in the program and each phase has different requirements and expectations um, the first 90 days in phase one are really intense you know we're hooking them up with electronic monitors and they're coming in to see us three times a week and they're 
every veteran through the duration of the program are coming in twice a week and they're doing urinalysis with me, which is always fun. So I'm, I'm in there and I get intimate with these veterans and, um, but yeah, I think it's called case management, but it's helping the veteran on this journey because they have so many demands. It's unbelievable. And something that, um, I've come to appreciate more is let's say they have to go to two meetings that day. So they have to go to their therapy at the VA and that's at 11 AM. And then they have to go to another meeting at three, right? But I have a vehicle, so I can just drive over, and I'm there on time. The process of having to navigate the bus system, having the funds to even pay for that, we, we do provide bus passes, but just the, the transit system is something that I've come to appreciate. They have to add an extra two hours to any direction they're going. Um, and I know you can speak more on this because these are all real-life challenges that sometimes I'm just sitting here and I'm like, all you had to do was go to that one thing, you know? And it's like, you don't know what I had to do. I, I ate my fish tacos today. We're, I'm we're, good. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Kev, Kevin forgot to leave out one of his roles because he's humble. Oh. He gives you the appearance that he can walk on water. You can't tell. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I should say, the for all the coordinators and the diversion courts, um, they have to do the outreach so promotion, they have to do the intake of the veterans, really. Um, it's kind of, I don't even know what you would describe that. It feels like, um, yeah, just getting the word out. I mean, even doing this is a service outreach. to the veterans mm-hmm. court. It's outreach. Yeah. Certainly. Certainly. Um, when you first meet with somebody about this intake or about this assessment and screening to see if that there's somebody that fits into the program um how do you approach it like what what's kind of like that process like in kind of earning that trust you know because like you said kind of earlier about the mentorship role and they tend to like kind of maybe relate some might relate better to a guy like ricky right i'm i'm a i'm the kind of person that like i'm all about peer support and like i think that like oftentimes these roles can create these barriers, right? right. Even though you come from the back, they don't know your story, right? Like, cause mm-hmm. like, how much do you disclose to them? Like they don't know Kevin, Kevin Rumley. They know Kevin Rumley. That's wearing that nice name tag. That's coming in <laughs> to try to sell me on some program. Right, <laughs> like, right, right. you know, what's that, what's that process like? And like, how, what, how do you, how do you handle some like resistance? If you have like a, a gut feeling or all signs are telling you that, Hey, this is a, prime candidate for our program yeah and i i think that's really rolling with it something i learned as a mentor is just the importance of listening Mm -hmm. um and seeking to understand which is important as a human you know there's uh they usually come with a lot of questions they're weighing the pros and cons of like okay wow this sounds like a lot you're gonna make me do and it is um and I think, yeah, just being able to listen can develop that trust. That do you get calls from family and things like that, or how how do they contact? How do veterans contact you? Like so, there. I always say there's no wrong way okay. to enter the veterans court. So it could be through your public defender asking uh, 
you can reach out, you can call um, the district attorney's office, or if you're in the jail, we do outreach there, or we will get a random phone call. I can drop my number. <laughs> Go ahead if you want. 828-259-6601. But yeah, anyway, we've done um, promotion on WLOS yeah. and people were calling like, hey, I got a traffic ticket. Can you help? <laughs> I actually know we're a diversion, but anything. And then that's when I will hook them up with NC Serves. Mm-hmm. So we don't ever say, oh, no, we can't help you because we're for this. Any veteran that reaches out, we're going to find support for them. Um, and that's a partnership that we have with NC Serves and the Veterans Treatment Court. Um, but really the... Yeah, the rapport that you create, that sense of trust is everything because the more honest that an individual is up front, then I think the more fluid the process is, um, we can provide better supports. We can actually, you know, help them achieve their goals unless they're just, you know, saying what they think I want to hear. So I think it's mostly listening. Uh, Kevin, besides the, uh, the structure, the routine and guidance and the confidence the guys gain from completing the program, uh, what's the benefit, uh, what's the benefit for them, for, for, what's the benefit for them to, to successfully complete it as far as their charges are, are to go, to go. That's right. So we, uh, if they can complete the program a year after they graduate from veterans court, um, Penny, no, uh, more encounters with law enforcement and they're, smooth sailing, then they can petition for a dismissal. And there's a new statute that all dismissal dismissals can be expunged. That's so true. it's easiest just to say you can get it expunged, Yeah, which is kind of that carrot at the end of this program is, um, yeah, we can get that charge removed. And then what does that provide for this new life that they've created for themselves, right? Opens doors for jobs yeah. and so many other things that like, those those charges tend to like hinder yeah you know which so much yeah. of the work that we're doing is to like overcome that but like yeah and in the program as they go through the phases and four and five we're working to help them identify either vocational goals so we want to have stable employment in place or maybe it's an education goal we have a lot of veterans that are retired or medically retired um, so we might introduce them to a financial planner that's kind of setting them up for success down the road. Um, A lot of the resources, a lot of those types of resources are provided through NC SERS, right? mm -hmm. When you guys were on last time with Brandon, you kind of talked about a lot of the, taking care of a lot of those resources or connecting them with others in the community. So like having this working relationship with with these other organizations allows you to like really do like true case management, right? Like really yeah. like do what your do what your job says you're going to do. It's you know? it's pretty amazing the platform of NC serves too yeah. cuz you can track it and follow it in a way that I don't know, that warm handoff used to be just a telephone call. Yo, then, Kev. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it, you know. <laughs> Good, Good luck. luck. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. now I can do the phone call. Hey, Ricky, come on over. Let me yeah. introduce you to... Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. And then I can follow this veteran through the process. And um, yeah, it's like 2 on one for all things veteran plus a caring human being that's going to 
be with you on that journey. And it's a win-win for everybody. Yes. Yeah. Including the mentor that's involved in that. Like everybody is, is in even the community. How, how much research has been done on like the cost saving of the, uh, diversion? Yeah. Like specifically oh veterans. Gosh. Do you, do you know? Yeah. I, oh, I should have. That's okay. That was revisit it. I know. I right. got to 2019 revisit my chops on this. Let's <laughs> say save 70,000 a year hey, per veteran. You're a busy man. The reason I invited you to come on in November and you were touring the whole month, the whole month. We'll get into that, but <laughs> um, Veterans Court also provides uh canine therapy. Kevin, you can probably touch on that. Oh right my gosh. Yeah, we we try and we're throwing the kitchen sink of recovery at <laughs> veterans. Yeah, we're partnering right now with Warrior Canine Connection. They're out of Baltimore, and they're bringing uh, the service animal into the courtroom. And it's it's fascinating. We have this adorable uh, golden retriever, Clifford, Clifford, <laughs> the big red dog, but he's not that big. But and he is being trained by our veterans. So they're meeting their community service requirements. They have to do that. Every veteran does in our program. Um, so they're excited. Yeah, I'm meeting my community service requirement, but they don't even realize that the dog is working with them and it's a form of therapy and they're learning how to, you know, kind of self-regulate and uh, even down to learning the inflection of their voice and commands with the service animal. We have this older veteran, he's a Marine and he's just, he's like this and you know, not very animated. And then I, I walk back there and I see him with this adorable dog and he's all high pitched. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we're working with service animals, warrior canine connection. Um, and I hope to just keep exploring other great things being done, uh, music therapy, art therapy. We're going to be working with uh, the Veterans Arts Council. So exciting things are in the pipeline. Yeah. It seems like just like all the resources kind of like come together and everybody's willing to assist in any way they can. That's, that's the Thank you, Kendall. You're the best front desk photographer, comfort hey, hey. in Silva, North Carolina. That's, that's one of the beautiful parts about the program is there's a lot of moving parts and everybody works great together as a team and, and it's everybody's really, really complimentary of one another. So a lot of good energy. A lot of good energy. I was trying to find out what they were saying, what, what they were saying about the cost savings, but we'll just move right along. Um, when you went back to school to get your master's here at Western Carolina, hometown over here, um, was that your goal? Were you like working towards working for the veterans court, having been a mentor there for however long you had? Was that, was that your intention? That was not even on my radar. Okay. Yeah. All right. I was, it was my goal to go to grad school mm -hmm. and that was all I could really see at the moment. <laughs> it's just like, I got to survive today. I got to survive. Yeah. But you wanted to get into the field. You chose, I wanted social, to get the field, you chose yeah. social work and kind of. Yeah. The social work field just provides a lot of opportunity. Um, and, you know, you can do like macro and systems level work, or you can do one-on-one, -on -one, which I really love. Um, and I had procrastinated for one of my classes um, I guess I missed the conversation, but they were like, all right, we need you to turn in your 
signature of where you're doing your internship. I was like, oh man, no one, I didn't read this anywhere. We're doing internships. So everyone was submitting them and I reached out to Dr. Howard. Um, I was like, hey, uh, is it cool if I do an internship with you? And if I sign your name, he's like, well, no, but we can yeah, <laughs> work yeah, this yeah. out. <laughs> so yeah, it was like a last minute everything. And Dr. Howard took me. He was the previous coordinator. Um, so I just did the internship and I didn't realize the entire time that I was his intern that he is, he was kind of grooming me for the position. He was setting things in place because um, they were building the program. So he had kind of like a vision for the direction of how they were kind of organizing. Exactly. And he built the ship that yeah. is, and he knew all along, he now works at, um, the Asheville city schools and he is uh, director of student services. Um, and he has been in the school system for a while, just an amazing individual. Um, but he isn't a veteran. His brother is a Marine. Um, and he has really strong roots with the service, but, um, yeah, he just was adamant that he said, I really want, you know, you as a Marine combat wounded veteran to serve as the coordinator. So he, he put that in motion and he believed in me when I couldn't believe in myself to do yeah. it. Did you find it challenging? Like the process of, cause I'm assuming you were a non-traditional student. Definitely. Um, yeah. Myself, like myself. Um, did you find that like challenging or difficult to kind of like come back on a big campus? Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, major, you know, big university in the state of North Carolina. Like to, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on over there. Yeah. It's, it's kind of overwhelming. And the, the feeling when I walk onto a campus is a similar feeling that I have when I walk into a courthouse. <laughs> it's, just, it's again, that terror. I'm sorry. I shook that. Yeah. I just got worked up right there thinking about it, <laughs> but yeah. So I think, that I was talking to a veteran earlier today and he's, he's trying to get his associates mm -hmm. and you know, he's like, man, I can't believe you got a grad degree. And just thinking about it, all it is is that persistence showing up day in and day out because a grad degree is no different than an associates. You just have showed up more days <laughs> and kept doing it, you know, and that, that persistence is, so important in recovery. Yeah, dude. Taking, that grit. Taking that first step. Yeah. It's like doing something that you never thought that you could do before. While you're having this conversation, my phone is ringing and I have my fingers. It's it's my school calling. Is it canceled? I don't know. Is it was ringing. It, I, it was ringing. Somebody tell me it was canceled. Somebody tell me it's canceled. I do not know. <laughs> It was a call, so we'll see what happens. Um, they call you to let you know it's canceled. I got like phone call notifications, text notifications, and email notifications because <laughs> I don't want to miss it if they do. Um, because it's so so rural and wild where I live that I got to stay on top of it. I can't miss it. Um, so when you started this internship, he disclosed to you that that was his intention in getting you the, like I think he had, uh, funnel working you towards this position, like you, the thought kind of, it happened at some point throughout the process of, yeah. you were like, okay, I can see where this is going. How many graduates have you had under your belt since you've? 
We've had counting counting mentorship to how many grad how many people have you seen personally make it through make it through the program? Uh, I've seen about eight personally. Yeah. And that's yeah, we would love to have more. Yeah. You know, it's two years, so the output, the numbers aren't enormous, but I always go back to one life changed. Yeah, that's a, everything. It's you're talking about a two year superstructure program, right? Yeah. You're talking about eight lives, eight people who have their lives back and now who are now, you know, probably giving it back and like being mentors and being of service just if it's not huge. through there, through our to our community, right? And are doing something yeah. positive in our community and being those leaders and being those role models um, in the community. And even the veterans that may not be successful in the veterans court, and this is something that, you know, the data can't show. It's not in the numbers that I might have to present to get a grant or something. But we have veterans that their entire life they've, um, they've suffered and, you know, it's just been one traumatic incident to the next and addiction and, um, any number of things. And they come to us and they're supported. We are this tribe and it really is, um, creating a sense of hope again. And so they may not be successful and they may not graduate and have all of those perks, but they have come back to say thank you for that opportunity. Thank you for what everyone in the program has provided, you know, and it, it impacted their lives in a, in a meaningful way, yeah. right. whether they completed the program or not. Exactly. And they find stability in their own way. Mm -hmm. You know, and uh, well, you kind of started off this conversation talking about what, this podcast does and like promoting multiple pathways to recovery. And I, the reason why, like we kind of like went down this road a year ago and starting this is that like, I'm a big proponent in like the individual figuring it out, right? Like you, Ricky Johnson, having a mentor, having somebody support system, but you defining your own recovery. Like here's some tools, here's some ideas, here's some concepts but only Ricky Johnson knows what works for him, right? Um, and like, for me, like, I'm always been one to take a non-traditional route, like, um, kind of like, you know, whatever that is. Like, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna follow the kind of quote-unquote social norms. Like, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna take the different route. I'm gonna do something, do it a different way. I'm gonna figure it out on my own. It's so empowering to do that, to like be able to, um, to be able to watch the individual kind of like start building that momentum and start like putting the pieces of the puzzle together, right? Whether it's like going to the gym or like running like Caleb or like, and then continuing to like grow throughout that. Talked about this a lot on this podcast. But when I started like 2014, I, found refuge recovery buddhist inspired meditation based not traditional 12 step non-theistic like you don't have to follow any particular beliefs it's a, a practice it worked man right it provided relief it got me out of my head it brought me it i learned what i learned how to live i learned what life was truly all about 
but I was in this refuge recovery bubble, right? For like two years, right? I didn't go to any 12-step meetings. I didn't reach out to other folks in my community who were doing things differently. Like I just stayed in my little, my little bubble. Well, that can only take me so far, right? Like there's only so far you can, you can go with that. Um, and the universe by the grace of God or whatever in starting this podcast is what got me out of the bubble. Like I might not have, but I was kind of like in a rut. Like I was like not feeling okay about school and like kind of just like feeling somewhat stagnant and like things weren't, I wasn't prospering, you know, I was living in recovery and I was the refuge recovery and the meditation was providing what it needed for me at that time, but I wasn't achieving my full potential. Right. And in bringing guys like you to the table, meeting guys like you and meeting guys like Brandon Wilson and just every, all these amazing people in our community, like, um, has allowed me to like redefine what my recovery is. And so like, I think to be able to walk with somebody, Ricky Johnson, walk side by side and kind of like watch them figure it out on their own with that structure that the veterans court provides. That's fucking beautiful, man. Like that, that is recovery. That is living. That's what that, I don't know what got me stuck when you guys were here last time, what I couldn't wrap my head around is uh, uh, if you remember is why, why other communities aren't doing what you guys are doing why there's not a veterans treatment court in every metropolitan city across the United States, why this model hasn't been just rolled out. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's it. so true. Um, and what? diversion in general and justice reform. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause it works and yeah, it saves lives. Yeah, it does. Um, let's talk a little bit about your, your, uh, I went on that rant about defining your recovery. Let's, let's get into a little bit about what defines Kevin Rumley's recovery. Like, how did you, how did you navigate the recovery world to, to kind of where you are today? Yeah, I, I was in, uh, heavy in the AA 12 step world. And that was because my best efforts were what got me to where I was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was at the bottom and um i finally had to yeah say i don't know what to do but i don't know how to live this way and i don't know how to live without and um you know i don't even think it was a bottom it was just i had failed so many times and woke up so many times suffering and in pain and you know from drinking 30 plus beers a day to you know, abusing the oxy to go into heroin. It doesn't, yeah, there was just no way to live. And finally I just accepted the support that was offered me and went to uh, the VA. Sometimes I tell the story and it's just really smooth. I went to the VA and boom, I went to the VA like five times and did inpatient (laughs) and did outpatient. And I would, you know, like, oh, well maybe I can just drink 20 duels and then it doesn't really count because I also had a head full of AA knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, where, were you, where, where were you living at the time? Were you 
downtown Asheville, right, okay. right next to a bar and, just, mm-hmm. you know, just really a healthy place. But yeah, I finally um, was able to get sober and I dove into the 12 step community and I was going to three meetings a day because that's what I needed. I needed that sponsor. I needed somebody telling me every second of the day what to do because I, I didn't know how to live successfully as a human being in this world. Um, and I'm also a big advocate now of uh, medication-assisted therapy. So I was put on um, Suboxone. Initially, it was methadone and then transitioned to Suboxone. And it saved my life, and I'm still on it. And I would say I don't know if I'm going to be on it for the rest of my life, um, but it is a ongoing conversation with my doctor. And so far, it's given me this stability to achieve the goals that I want to today. Um, so I, there's a lot to be said for um, MAT, medication-assisted therapy, but the biggest part was really the therapy and putting in the work um, in that time. And it's interesting how my recovery has changed, kind of like you're saying, you know, I had similar to you that that world, right? Just like refuge was for you, AA was for me. And I was in a band in AA and I was, that was my social group. You're in an AA band? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we didn't self-identify as that. Yeah. <laughs> we rocked. <laughs> but it's, my recovery has changed over time because um, you're always looking for that role model. You're always looking for that identity of self. And um, yeah, as I continued, I found my role models changed and there were people outside of this community that I was in that I was inspired by, same as you're doing with the podcast and, you know, this big community, you're on on almost halfway to a hundred episodes, you know, that's incredible, but you're meeting all of this, these amazing people that are doing recovery. Um, and so, yeah, I just started to slowly branch out and, um, but holding on to the, that foundation that I had from the 12 steps and, here I am nine years later and I'm able to successfully go on tour, you know, up the Northeast in a band and, um, yeah, not get high or drink. Yeah. Like something that you've always like probably dreamed about, right? Not just playing in a band on a Friday night at a local dive bar, but like touring. Exactly. You told, you told me you played in front of how many people this Oh, we uh, we played at the Warren Haynes Christmas Jam, and I think it was like four thousand people. Yeah. yeah, dude, it was a highlight for yeah. sure. That's getting after it, taking pictures with celebrities. Ooh, <laughs> I, yeah, I did meet Dave Grohl. Yeah, it's pretty dope, man. Um, MAT, right? That's it. The so you've been in long term recovery for nine years, right? Um, depending on who you talk to, there's a lot of like uh disagreements or it's like taking there's a shift that's taking place in regards to mat um a lot of proponents a lot of people against it a lot of people you know it's kind of like both sides kind of like the political world that we live in these days but there's you know kind of both sides of the party both sides of the apple and what what i'm seeing is that like research is showing right and there's that it works you're living proof that it works research has begun to show that it's worked it works and you're seeing a kind of a shift in um, 
in the point of view uh, of this type of approach um, to the point where like I'm taking a class that's called substance abuse counseling and our textbook is all about MAT and in oh. you know other newer pharmaceuticals depending on drug of choice and that sort of thing but there's a large portion of what we're studying is about um, MAT about kind of changing the approach and the way that we um, work with people who suffer from substance use disorders. And so like what, being someone that's been around for a while, almost a decade, my brother, almost a decade, like what kind of shift have you seen and what kind of like level of acceptance have you grown to in regards to um, medicated assisted treatment? Yeah. Well, I, when I first started, in recovery, I was quick to pick up on the social norms of uh, recovery is kind of that binary, right? You're either in recovery or you're not. And I was like, all right, I've got this one down. I know what I got to do. I can't have any support, blah, blah, blah. I can't use medicine to <laughs> help me through this. Um, but I was unsuccessful. And every time I tried, I just couldn't do it. For me personally, having I have shrapnel in my body. I have 32 surgeries. I deal with chronic pain. I deal with my own challenges, right? And um, yeah, it was interesting. So I got on MAT, and but I was still going to the 12-step community. I had a sponsor. We were working the steps. I had that trust and rapport, and I told him um, on the fourth step that I'm on Suboxone, and he fired me. You know, and that was that that moment where I was like, okay, that that right there is that all or nothing thinking, right? That recovery isn't available to me if I don't do this. And because I was taking a medicine that supported me, that's it's not open, right? The store to recovery is not for you. But I look back and it was a great opportunity, right? I now see and this is supported, like you're saying, by the research that recovery is a continuum. It's just a big arc of wellness. And I'm not here to say, well, in the court, I kind of am, but in the real world, I'm not here to say how you need to live your life, you know, and I'm not there in the court either to say how they need to live their lives. It's simply an option. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you always have the choice to say F you and do whatever you want. Yeah. But, um, my, yeah, it's my wife's actually the she's a program director of a MAT facility. So okay, uh, she's it's awesome. o- it's opened my eyes up to the to a MAT treatment as well. I see it as I see it like this because I used to be had that I had that closed mind toward it initially, but um, if somebody can if a person can use that that treatment and it keeps them from from using heroin or stealing to get high, stealing other people's property. I see that as a benefit myself. So Mm -hmm. I guess like, you know, I can see both sides of the argument, mostly from like personal experience. Like I know that it, I've seen the success stories. I've met them, right? I have two hands full, three hands full of close friends that have used this approach 
to get their life back, bro, to do all the things that you just described. But I also know a handful of folks who have abused it. Definitely. Who have yeah. um, gone and gotten it and traded it for heroin or sold it to buy heroin um, and gone down that road. And so, like, you know, I'm definitely not an expert on this topic. I'm just a dude in recovery, right? I am not anything more than that, okay? Um, but, like, my experience tells me is that people who use it in a structured environment, right, who have a sponsor, who are working a program, who are in close, in conversation with their doctor regularly and their therapist or whoever it is, are successful, right? Um, back home in Florida, like, you can just kind of, like, it's, it's accessible without that type of structured requirements. Like, you would have to really, they're very lenient with, like, giving it out almost like to the point where like it was 10 years ago with opioids where like you could just Standing doctor shop. Now yeah. they're just handing that out and like then they're getting it and then they're trading it or selling it to buy the drugs. And so like, I can kind of see like how I can see both sides of the coin, even though I know that it works. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think it's for everyone. I don't mm -hmm. think it's at all a, this golden solution. It's another tool available for some and, like Ricky's saying, it is the idea of reducing harm to um, really foster the dignity of experience for everyone. To have that available is so important. I'd rather have the individuals that abuse it, right, that sell it on the street. Um, I always just go back to this idea of we don't know when it's going to hit them that recovery. But I do know even if it's a mediocre MAT facility, you still have to go in and talk to a substance use professional. Yeah. So that's every single day. And you may not be listening. You're like, Oh, I just need to get this methadone so I can go sell it and get high. Right. But you're still having to talk to someone and over time it just, you don't know when it might stick. It might be on the second or the 10th year that you're going to this mm -hmm. methadone clinic. And you know what? I've heard enough of Ricky telling me and asking me these questions and boom, it just hits. I don't know. Yeah. I just believe that we, we don't know when, but we have to at least provide that resource. And the same is true with uh, Narcan, mm -hmm. you know, cause we've heard, before the argument of, well, why would we want to rescue somebody who's OD'd if they're just going to get high again and do it? And we see with firefighters and law enforcement, I mean, that, that's a very real challenge they're facing. But um, again, we just don't know when. Maybe it's that seventh time that they've been brought back from the dead that it's finally going to click and say, yeah. you know what, I want to do this. Let me ask you this. Um Do you think that, because you mentioned, you, you said it, that it's not for everybody, right? That it's not this society these days. We're looking for like a cure-all, catch-all, like, you know, there's no magic pill that will cure us from this other than putting in the work, right? And that, you know, um, but like, is there... You know my tummy? Oh, dude, I'm hungry, it. bro. I'm hungry. It's dinner time. Um, is there like, 
I know somebody who had multiple years of long-term recovery sub without any substance, no MAT, multiple years, five plus years, return to use. Had a couple months back out, came to, went through detox, and they automatically, they put them on MAT. And they just had like very short term, like five plus years of no, of no, like over prescribing, I guess is what I'm kind of like getting at. Like having, having five plus years of substance free, mm-hmm. nothing in your system. And boom, you put on it. Yeah. You go back out for a couple months, a month, couple months, like without having long-term use, right? Without having that real like physical dependence and like. Yeah. So they, that, that's a very real challenge or they have five years sober. Then they go out and use, then they stop. And by the time they can get that first MAT appointment, Mm -hmm. it's another month later. So they have a month clean Yeah. and then they're put on it and it's, it's difficult to get off of Suboxone and methadone. It's very real and as painful as, um, you know, any other withdrawal. It's yeah, it's a, a serious challenge, yeah. right? It's that balance again, and I, I appreciate the difficulty of uh, the work that your wife does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess like I guess what I'm like asking or trying like trying to get at is that like is there, um, is there monitoring or is there like who is, kind of like overseeing like the distribution of of it and like is there um i don't know yeah well there's strong oversight and even at the va um in the most states a doctor has a prescribing limit Mm -hmm. so to prescribe suboxone you have to have a unique certification and then uh, for the first year you have a limit of i don't know 10 individuals and then the next year you can increase that. And there's, there is a lot of, uh, oversight for sure that's happening. And I don't know the specific numbers, but where, where does your wife work in Asheville? Yeah. She works at a, a clinic called BHG behavioral health group. Okay. Yeah. She's a program director there. The, uh, the opiate epidemic is what brought us to Asheville because of her background in that field. Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, and again, like it's, it's balance, you know, like access I'm talking about like overprescribing and ease of access to it. But then here we are doing a podcast in Jackson County, little old Silva, North Carolina, where they, you, you can't even find it. You can't even get it. If you get on methadone or suboxone, if I'm not mistaken, you have to drive to Haywood County. Right. Wow. And um, it's done. It's distributed over there. So I've had close friends who um, early recovery got to make the drive every single day right until you can earn your take-homes and that sort of thing and so then you're talking about somebody in early recovery having to drive half hour 45 minutes who knows if they have a driver's license how do they get over there you know like there's so many other strings um that come with that so like there's like it's like both ends of the spectrum like people can get it or here it's distant 
it's not yeah. like not accessible and like what is the what is the balance you know um <clears throat> is it do veterans who come through the treatment court do they can they be in On that program MAT? Mm-hmm. um so that was they can yes okay and it was something that was really important to me as i started as the coordinator um the drug court and the veterans court their policy was not to have um, MAT, you know, because it does introduce a lot of challenges because we're doing uh, twice a week testing your analysis. Um, can we kind of differentiate between the medication you're prescribed versus what you're getting from the street? It's, it's very real. And then if we want to kind of tell the difference, we have to pay more money to get better tests that have 14 panels and can separate everything, but who's paying for that? Who's paying for that? Right. But in my own experience, what, um, MAT provided me, I knew it was at least important to have the conversation. So I wasn't going to dive in there and say, we need to do this or else or else. Right. (laughs) But I was gonna one at a time with the stakeholders as they, you know, as we learn in school, but it's really just talking to people that are at the courthouse in the team one-on-one about my own story. And I would hear feedback like, well, gosh, you know, you don't seem like you're high or, you know, you show up to work every day, Kevin. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I mean, you, you do have this (laughs) strange hair, but (laughs) that's the worst of it. All right. I could be open to this, but really it is that narrative. And, uh, being able to communicate the personal journey, same mm-hmm. as we're doing, you're doing with the podcast, um, and one at a time. Yeah, people are like, okay, well, maybe we could explore MAT with one veteran, um, and that's how it started. And now I think we have five veterans that are on it, and it's been a great <clears throat> success. Well, that and like as you're having these conversations, the research is catching up to you. Right. right. So like yeah. you're like you'll have a conversation and then you can say, hey, go look it up or hey, here's a here's a research study that shows or hey, here's this that like the data. Yeah. And we know I, one of my favorite statistics is <clears throat> that if you just try and stop opioids, cold turkey, 90 percent of people will be unsuccessful and they're going to return to use. They'll have a relapse, which is why the opioid epidemic is so deadly. That's why people are dying because mm-hmm. 90% of the time you are not going to be successful. And the research shows that just with either introducing methadone or suboxone, there's a 60% chance of success, which is pretty staggering. Mm-hmm. So that saves lives right there. Yeah. And 40%, yeah, it doesn't work. And that's what we're talking about is 40% of people are not going to be appropriate. Or yeah. I don't know if that's who's not appropriate, but it won't work. (laughs) Yeah. But then you talk about a program like what you guys are doing 60% of the time it works. But then when you add in these layers of structure through the veterans treatment court, through a mentorship program, through assessing their basic human needs at NC serves, providing all of these things, I guarantee that number at least goes up another 20%. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, by just handling those simple basic human needs and like providing that structure and mentorship, it's got to, it's got to work. Um, that's pretty kick-ass, man. I didn't know that that's what your wife did. Mm -hmm. 
That's pretty she, well. She's got, she has two master's degrees and I have two felonies, so. Two, two peas in a pod. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of equal it up. Uh-huh. But we're talking about balance, man. We're talking about balance. Um, what, why do, do you, how, for you to be able to respond the way you did when your sponsor, air quotes, fired you, right? For you to be able to like overcome that and like apply the spiritual principles to, to that situation and to continue to show up and to continue to be honest with not just yourself, but probably everybody in your life or the people that were around you like that, that in itself, that experience in itself like shows like the level of growth and like where you were at with your personal recovery and like what was happening because like that could be risk. That's risky business for many individuals um, at that time. Huh? Yeah. It, I mean, it was, it was heartbreaking because I looked up to my sponsor and yeah, I felt like he's saying, ah, you know what? You're not, you're not successful. Yeah. Right. And I just had these constructs of what I had to be just back to that idea again of Mm -hmm. like what recovery needs to be. And if you're not this, then you don't, you can't be with us. Um, but I, I think again, just showing up, you know, even if it was challenging to have a, you know, to talk to him the next day or the next month or the next year, and eventually, yeah, we did kind of fade out, right? Mm-hmm. And new relationships took form, but I that's just, the beauty of life, though. Like, yeah. you know, like you form these relationships, and we have these people in our lives for the time that they're meant to serve us, and us serve them, and then like we kind of like move on. So again, it's like opportunities to apply these principles. I read I read a quote the other day that said, um, "If you don't lose friends along the way in your journey, you're not growing." Mm-hmm. So. A lot of truth to that, yeah. But, but to be beautiful. able to accept it, right? Because like you want, you want all these things to last. Nothing, nothing. Everything's fleeting, right? It's like mm-hmm. glad this Buddhism stuff. Real, I can understand. That's why I understand it because it makes sense. But like it's all fleeting. Like these relationships won't last. But I can appreciate them right now. Sure, I can appreciate these years that I know you guys and the time that I get to spend with you guys and like the things that we get to do when it's over, it's over. That's life, right? Lights go out, the lights go out. Mm -hmm. You're not going to change anything. But the impact that we can make today on other people, the way that we live our lives today. um, God, yesterday, Sunday, I worked this little retail job Retail's always been my my background, even in like active addiction. Um, I, as a young man, I always like I wasn't very social. Like I didn't feel like I fit in. I always felt like awkward. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. And I just like you know. And so like uh, fortunately, my dad was like, hey, "Hey, if you get a job, we'll work on getting you a vehicle, right? Like you can." we'll buy you a vehicle and then you could pay me back kind of teaching you like a learning lesson as a 16 year old, 16 year old young man. So I like got up and I went and found a job like within an hour, right? (laughs) It was in retail. So it's always been my thing. So retail, like kind of like, um, taught me those social skills that I was lacking. 
because I, I was forced to talk to customers and sell them things and earn their trust. And so that's always been what I do. So that's always kind of like my, my safety zone, my safety net that I rely on. Cause I love, it. I love talking to people. I love the engagement. And so I pull up to work yesterday. I'm a part-time supervisor, opening and closing manager at this like <clears throat> little department store, downtown Silva old school department store, like two floors, like an old Sears or an old like JC Penney's or something, clothing, home goods, stuff like that. But like true old school department store. I pull up to open the store. I'm scheduled to be there at 11 o'clock as the opening manager on duty. And I had like three or four other associates scheduled to be in at 12 o'clock when we open up. So I pull up to the door, to the front door. I get out of my car. I walk up to the front door. I don't have the keys to open the store. I can't find them. They're not in my pocket. They're not in my car. They're, they're nowhere to be found. So I walk back to my car. I sit down for a second. I'm like, oh, let me think real quick. Oh, shit. Yesterday, I worked from 9 till 3, kind of the opening shift. And I remember taking the keys out of my pocket when I was sitting in the desk doing an email, and I laid them on the desk, and I went home for the day. So my keys are sitting on the desk and I can't get into the store. My store manager's on vacation. There's only one other person around, the other assistant manager that can physically open the door, right? There's only one other person. And like, I was just like, fuck, you know? How do you respond to that? What do you do? So now it's like 1130. We got 30 minutes to like, open the store i can't get a hold of her i'm calling her calling her i'm texting her social media i even text her sister i text her boyfriend baby daddy i was like trying to get a hold of her but the whole entire time i'm just like this is the these are the circumstances that i've been dealt i didn't lose the keys i'm like not in trouble i know they're inside but like five years ago Shit, like two years ago, I would have lost my marbles over this, right? I would have just like blown my shit like to myself. Like how could, you know, just like just living in this pity party of like nonsense. And so uh, she eventually called me back. I think she answered. I I was blowing her up because she was literally the the only person that could let me in. So I had a conference call at 1230. And so I finally got in the store start getting situated, got everything turned on, and I'm getting ready to get on the conference call, and all the computers go offline, dead. Like, literally, can't run a credit card, can only process, like, old-school cash transactions, got customers piling up at the cash register, the phone's ringing, from the district manager people like, hey, you're supposed to be on a conference call right now, you know? And I'm just like, I gotta get this thing, I gotta get these computers fixed back online. So I had like the help desk on the phone, but like throughout this, so like long story short, it was just like, it was one of those days, right? It was one of those make or break moments where you either like apply these skills that we've been building, these things that we've been like working on working hard on um, or we lose our shit. And I just like, I just like, it just kicked in. Like, it's like 
the more that I, the more that I practice, the more that I do these things, the more, the easier that it is to overcome those difficult, difficult days, those challenges, right? It all worked out. By the end of the day, we were having fun. We got all of our projects done for the day. You know, it was a decent day. It was a shitty couple hours in the morning and it was a decent day. (laughs) You know what I mean? But if what happens if you blow your shit in the morning, Mm -hmm. the whole rest of the day is going to suck, right? I was like, man, I got home. I didn't even think about it. Like I just, it kicked in on its own. It never used to, you know what I mean? But it kicked in on its own. I just worked my way through it. Um, I got home at the end of the night. I went to a refuge recovery meeting after we meditated. I got home late. I'm like, man. I wasn't that bad. Like we, we got through it. So like, I think just like overcoming those little, those crazy things. Right. But then what does that do? That's something for me to like build on and continue to grow from. Um, yeah, it was wild, man. Yeah. That sounds, I'm just hearing that. I was like, man, that's stress. Oh, that's, Oh, there's more. (laughs) (laughs) I can feel it. I, I laid down. I was like, man, I gotta, I gotta share that on the podcast at some point. Cause it was just like, that was yesterday. That was yesterday. Yeah, yesterday, man. Um, but you just get through it. It's, you, you can't, I don't know, I just can't do it. Um, what? Uh, where do you see this thing going? Where do you see this Veterans Treatment Corps? What's your vision for all of this hard work and kind of like where, what's the next step to get you to that? The vision, well, we just now that the federal government opened back up, we... Uh, what kind of... Hold on, hold on. Let's back up for a second. Yeah. What, how, how did that affect you guys? Well, <laughs> we were awarded a four-year Department of Justice grant, and it started January 1st, just as the government <laughs> shut down. So the Department of Justice put that on hold. Our funding was on hold. But uh, yeah, the government's back open, and... We're moving ahead, getting the contracts in place with the county and uh, subcontractors. So we have four years of sustainable funding that will, um, that's the most we've ever had since the Veterans Court started. Um, When we started in 2015, based on a Governor's Crime Commission grant, that was just under three years of funding. And so I kind of entered the picture at the very tail end um, when the three years of funding was ending and I knew that I was charged with finding a funding stream and we reached out everywhere. We sent out grants everywhere. This is uh, not a unique problem. Every veterans court in North Carolina and across the U S has been looking for sustainability and funding. Um, so I do, I should give a shout out to NC Brookhaven behavioral health because, um, when the state cut all funding to the Veterans Court in Buncombe County, NC Brookhaven's CEO, Fred Baker, he's a Vietnam veteran, Purple Heart recipient, um, just amazing individual. He stepped up and said, I believe in the Veterans Court and I believe in the work that you guys are doing. And um, so he funded us. He said, I'm going to fund you until we can find sustainable grants and, uh, you know, get this thing off the ground. Wow, that's significant. Yeah. And it was, it was everything that we needed, you know, and here we made it through a year and we were sending out the RFPs, the proposals and, um, yeah, the department of justice warded us, uh, veterans court and drug court, half a million dollar funding. 
Boom. So yeah, we're we're charging ahead, and we got money for training. We have uh, mentor trainings that are going to be happening. Just a lot of exciting stuff, and um, we want to grow capacity. We want to impact as many veterans as we can in a positive way that are facing you know felony level charges. So just continuing to do the good work, just impacting more. Not that we want veterans to go out and commit the perfect <laughs> felony so they can get these services, but I do hear that from veterans when I'll, I do outreach at inpatient at the VA or something, and they're like, man, this program sounds great. You're saying, though, that I don't get this yeah. service unless I go commit the crime. This so. is perfect for me, but I don't have any felonies. Huh? Right, I'll, right. I'll be right back. Yeah. Um, so what we, we do work, I should mention, we work um, with all the counties west I was going to ask you what you cover because um, there's a lot of veterans in Macon County in the Franklin area. Don't they have like a small VA or something over there? Yeah. Some kind of office over there. There's a lot of veterans. Yeah. uh, Over in that kind of like general vicinity. There's, there are, and I, you may be able to highlight this more, but the, yeah, we have a lot of veterans. We have the highest rate of homeless veterans in the entire state. Asheville does, um, or Asheville, these western yeah. counties do? Yeah, Asheville specifically. Um, but we, as a diversion court, veterans court, will work with the district attorneys for the 26 counties uh, west of Catawba. Okay. And, I mean, it just comes down to the district attorney's willingness in another county to change the venue. The individual has to relocate to Buncombe which is a big ask. So if you have yeah. a family and you're in a different county, you're going to have to move your kids or you have to move and they stay behind. Especially with like the cost of living and stuff out there these days. It's right. Not. Yeah. So we'll take, we'll take veterans from a lot of the surrounding counties, but um, most of our referrals come through Buncombe. Yeah. You ever thinking about going back to school, man? Um, right now I'm currently getting supervision for my CSAC. Yeah. Um, I did, I was in college for a couple of years. It helped me grow a lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm just not, a. to be honest, there was a lot of the, the, I couldn't buy into a lot of it because I already had life experience and what, what was being taught compared to what I experienced. That's kind of what we were sharing before. Just, I uh-huh. couldn't, I couldn't, um, so I still, uh. I don't really think about it anymore. I'm, I know God will put me where I'm supposed to be at, so that's the way I look at it. What do you want to do? Um, I don't look too far ahead. You know, like I said, I'm in the process of getting my CSAC, getting my license back in a couple of years. Uh, I, I feel like this year, honestly, for my wife and I, is going to be a big year. I've, I've, I feel like a lot of mom- – I feel momentum right now. Yeah. And I'm just looking to capitalize off of that and – um I don't. I don't get. I don't look too far ahead. I don't get tunnel vision. I don't get too obsessed and consumed. That's bad for me because I have a. I'm a 180 guy. So yeah. I just take it. <laughs> I, I take it as. It, I take whatever happens. I take it as it comes. So. How did you two first meet? I think we met through Brandon. Yes. Yeah. Brandon said, "Hey, I got this amazing Marine. You got to meet him. His story is incredible, but." Uh, just the work he's doing and his ability to connect to the veterans. Yeah. It, and it was all immediate, right? Cause we, we're looking for mentors actively right now. If there's a veteran listening to this that has at least a year clean. Do they have to be in recovery to be a mentor? No, they don't. 
but it's a skill that's pretty yeah, valuable. Yeah. Uh-huh, certainly. And um, but no, you don't have to be in recovery, but you do have to not be um, in use, yeah. active use. So, yeah, any veterans out there listening, we are interested um, in having your support. And Ricky just stepped up and shared his story, as you heard last uh, last time, and it it resonated with everyone in that room. He came and spoke to the Veterans Treatment Court team. And uh, yeah, I think as he does often when he shares about his story, you know, your jaw drops and you're just amazed by the resilience. You're amazed by that perseverance in the face of adversity and still a sense of hope. Um, And yeah, all of this other stuff aside for the Veterans Court, Right, we've got amazing services and partnerships in the community. We, my biggest goal is creating a sense of hope for the veterans, yeah. and um, I'm exploring that. That's a long-term goal. Like, what is hope? How do you so create? Let me it? give but you my, my my experience of meeting Kevin. All, all I knew of Kevin was what I was told. So I'm thinking this combat marine, very intense guy. And I meet, I meet Kevin. This Kevin's like. Kevin, I mean, being around Kevin, you get great. Kevin's got uh, his energy alone just mm-hmm. puts you at ease and um, just uh, definitely doesn't match what I had pictured in my mind. <laughs> Wasn't the uh, expectation that you had no, going into it. very relaxed, cool, calm, collective yeah. person. A drill instructor. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. I know, he showed up like, yes, sir. That's all good. You just call me Kevin. <laughs> all good. Um, the thing is, man, is that you're doing exactly what you said. You know, like you're doing it. Um, Every person that I've met has shared exactly what you just said about him. Hmm. I think the the way that you carry yourself, level of authenticity and like being real and true to yourself, you can tell that it's genuine. You can tell that you're there because um, you're passionate about what you do, right? And that it means something to you to see these men be successful, it's not just to fulfill that, you know, twice a twice a month paycheck that you get. Like you're there for the right reasons, and you want to see it grow. Um, just like this recovery thing and the stigma, right? The stigma around recovery, the stigma around MAT. Like it's a long term deal, right? This thing doesn't. It, it takes time, right? It takes time to shift culture and like. Um, you hear so much about the veterans who are struggling, right? There's always like a cause, you know, people are always talking about what it means to them, right? Like the average person, right? They're always, you always hear the numbers and you always hear the statistics, but very few people are doing something about it. Right. But you two guys are, right? Something else about Kevin, I I think Kevin fits his role perfectly because I, you know, a lot, a lot of the guys in the program are, you know, they they lived in fear. They're anxious. They're angry. It's like a, you know, they have that a lot of tension. And Kevin's that guy that's just like kind of gives you that, hey, it's going to be okay, like that calming, soothing effect to people. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can really tell that with the when he's around all the veterans in there. So. Yeah. The uh, the best compliment I ever got from a um, graduate <laughs> of the program. And this wasn't directly to me, but it was third person. They're like, yeah, Kevin, he's not a pushover. 
But he doesn't push you over. <laughs> I said, that's cool. <laughs> that's one of the kindest things ever. <laughs> well, I think just like what you kind of shared about Ricky, that like, um, you know, he shared his testimony and your jaw just drops. Like, here's Kevin, like this humble, soft-spoken, like chill dude. But then when you're able to like open up with these guys and share with them what you've been through, I'm sure it's the same reaction from them, right? Like, yeah, I mean, yeah. Which you haven't shared tonight. (laughs) You didn't share your uh, experience that led you to getting wounded. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's wild. It's, it's definitely a wild story. And, but the, yeah, back to just that sense of that hope and, you know, there yeah. change is possible, which I didn't believe when I was in active use. Yeah. I didn't believe that you could ever change. You know? I think that's like what so many people are stuck on. Like I can remember, um, I can remember losing my job, taking my 401k and just like rolling out. Right. And just like partying for months. I had like, um, I was like functioning. I always always went to work. I justified my behavior because I always went to work, right? And I had this job, made a decent living, paid the bills. So I was able to like indulge, you know, a lot. And I can remember right towards the end of the last couple of years, like um, having lost my job and having cashed out the money and just like going out. And like, I can remember just like I, I was living in Tampa, Florida, I came up here um, to the place where I'm living right now, my, my grandparents' cabin up on the mountain. And, like, I can remember, like, driving, like, making that drive from Florida to here and just, like, I can remember a level of acceptance. Not, like, wanting to change. Never, the thought never crossed my mind. But, like, okay, this is my life. Like, this is what defines my life. Like, I... I was born an alcoholic. I was born a drug addict. Like this is just who I am. Like the, there was no, there was no, no idea of ever changing. There was no intention. There was never any type of effort. Like there was acceptance over those thoughts. I was like, this is it. This is how things are. I'll just enjoy it. (laughs) You know, like that's just kind of like, kind of where we were. I don't know why. And that's like the hardest part, like what you said. It's just like, how do you, how do you, how do you translate that to somebody who is in that mindset? How do you translate that there is hope, right? How do you, how do you share that and inspire folks? Because even like, as a young man, like people would come in and share their story and what they've been through, and I would still be, they they were still separation my mind would instantly be like i'm not that dude i'm not you i'm not that rick ricky johnson i'm not that steve sneed right like i don't know i don't know what the answer is comes up a lot in these conversations yeah don't know i think a bit uh something i speak kevin and i were talking about earlier is a listening just to listen i mean just to listen to someone it it gives them so much hope as in uh, you're just validating what they're going through just just it makes them feel like they're they're mad and they have worth just the fact that you listen to them and let them talk do you have any affiliation with the organization seek healing out there and the listening training that they do it's a pretty dope uh 
dope organization. They, they're fairly new to Astro. They've only been around for like a year. Uh, the founder, Jennifer Nicolaisen, she was on the show a while, a couple months, month, last month or at the beginning of this month, I guess. Um, it's pretty, pretty amazing that y'all should definitely like connect with them. It's very similar to like peer support. Um, but they run, operate on a, the premise of like the opposite of addiction is connection, mm-hmm. right? And they're using all that data. Um, and so what they do is they teach people how to listen. They teach you how to become a listener. They do all these. So it's like a peer support type certification, but you only oh, cool. you do like a two day training where you like sit one on one with different people and you kind of like role play these exercises and do these different things um, to teach you how to like create that space for the individual and become a listener. Um, so they do that and then they kind of like what you guys do. They pair you up with a seeker, somebody who is seeking healing. They pair you up with the seeker as a listener and you kind of like mentor them the way that Ricky does. Um, and then they do social gatherings and social outings like once or twice a month where they'll have like a meditation night or a yoga night or a game night or just different things to like create that kind of like group dynamic and that group social connection and social interaction. Dude, I'm telling you, they got, they got it going on. What's it called? Seek healing. Cool. Yeah. I would totally check it out and listen that she was on the podcast three or four episodes ago, five episodes, beginning of this month. Um, awesome organization. So we'll check that out. Yeah. It'd be worth like connecting with them because it's, it's all free too. It's like grant funded and privately funded. So like, okay, all of the services are free and then they offer to like connect you with additional resources, kind of like what you guys do through NC serves. Um, a lot of research behind it. So it's, it's really cool. Um, well, I'm gonna let you guys run. It's getting a little late. The storm is coming. The storm is coming. (laughs) Um, we got lucky today with scheduling the weather. was like, you know what? Fine. I'll let you guys think you can get away with this recording. <laughs> but you, you guys emailed long enough, <laughs> <Yeah>. okay? <laughs> You're not going to make it home. It finally <laughs> happened, but um, I appreciate you, t- you taking the time, coming out and sharing what you guys are doing. How can people connect with the Veterans Treatment Court if they have a friend or family member or somebody who might be in need and have interest in like connecting with you guys for personal or to po- potentially be a mentor? Definitely anyone for interested in support or any of the above, um, you can go to bunkumveteranscourt.com or you can call 828-259-6601 or I'll always give out my cell phone. Um, you can call 24-7 and that's area code 703-389-9918. Um, yeah, hope and change hope and change baby boom my man ricky johnson guys he does some kick-ass videos on facebook he does how can people find you on social media ricky johnson uh, it's pretty simple ricky johnson jr you'll see my wife and i on my profile picture the dude's got some killer um videos i highly recommend shooting him a friend request following him checking out his videos, engaging with him, asking him questions. He's always like, he's very interactive on there. Um, and I also want to have you come back and kind of talk about Ricky. Maybe bring the wife with you and love, do like I would, a, I would love to do that. Um, before you leave, let's talk about March. 
Let's do that. Sound good with you? Absolutely. Also, uh, NC Serves Western. If you know of any veterans that are struggling with resources, or if you're a veteran yourself, we're online, NC Serves Western, or you can find us on Facebook as well. Uh, Brandon, I apologize. I don't have the number memorized. So. I don't either. Yeah. I have y'all's business card in my laptop sleeve over there. Okay. But Ooh, so close. Hit the website, guys. Yep. Thank y'all for tuning in. You two are badasses, man. I had a ton of fun. Y'all Thank are awesome. You, uh, we'll do it again soon. Thanks for che- checking out NC Raw, North Carolina Recovery Always. Visit our website at www.ncraw.life to subscribe to our website and receive exclusive content emailed directly to your inbox. Y'all have a wonderful evening. Thank you.